invite you to turn in your Bibles now to 2 Samuel chapter 14. Second Samuel, Second Samuel, chapter fourteen. <clears throat> we, are, we are going to see that Absalom will return to Jerusalem. He fled Jerusalem because he murdered Abnon, and and now Joab is going to convince David to uh, to to have Absalom return, and he's going to do it through this woman from Tekoa. <clears throat> so Second Samuel, chapter fourteen. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says to you, bring him to me. If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of the blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of of God. And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king said to the, the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. 
And the woman said, Let the Lord, my, the king, speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with, with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him, let him dwell apart in his own house, he is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels, by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter who was, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Jeshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to this passage, there may be some things that are confusing and odd about it, but we thank you that this is your word for us today. We thank you that this, uh, that though nothing good happens in this chapter, that there is much wisdom for us. We ask, Lord, that through your word here, that we would desire your grace, that we would be desperate for your grace every day that we would also recognize that we need to walk in your wisdom daily. So we ask, Lord, that you would give that grace today, that you would give us wisdom through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, once again, we come to a passage that's not very well known. 
It may seem a little obscure, uh, and uh, it may be a bit confusing to follow. I mean, that was a, that was a long chapter, wasn't it? So, yeah, who, who is this woman from Tekoa? Um, how does her odd story end up convincing David to bring Absalom back? And why hasn't David just brought his son back anyways? What's, uh, and, 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 and this whole chapter, what could it possibly have to do with my life? Now, if those are some thoughts that are going through your head, that's, that's totally understandable. Uh, it took me a few reads of this chapter to just really begin to uh, understand what's, what's, actually, what's actually happening here and to begin to see its place in, in the whole flow of 2 Samuel. And as we'll see, this, this chapter is very important in the, in, this, in the flow of this story. Old Testament stories uh, may often may seem a little irrelevant, but they actually have much wisdom for us. When we read Old Testament narrative, it often teaches us about God, about who He is and how He works. And it also teaches us about man, about mankind. And God who made man knows what's hidden within man. And as we read God's Word, we get to see behind everything. We get to see inside the heart of mankind and see how, how sin works, how, how sin grows, and how it contorts, how it deceives, and, and how it hides. Though we're reading a story that's 3,000 years old, God hasn't changed, and human nature hasn't changed. As we consider this passage, we see that nothing good happens. In previous chapters, we've seen that as well, and, and, and we've seen David's active sinning. And now, we're going to see David's passive sinning. We see his sins of omission, that he knows what God requires of him to do, and he doesn't do it. Before we dive into this passage, let's consider the backstory. Let's look at what Absalom is doing, and let's, do what, what, uh, let's look at what David's doing. And then let's look at what God is doing. I think this will really help frame this chapter for us. So first, Absalom. So Absalom, he's, he's, the, he's David's son. And he has fled uh, Jerusalem because he murdered his half-brother Amnon as revenge against his sister Tamar. Tamar is Absalom's full sister. David didn't bring about justice for Amnon. So Absalom uh, seemed to take things in his own hands. As he, uh, after he murdered Amnon, he then fled to Talmai, who is uh, Absalom's uh, grandfather, his maternal grandfather. And so uh, he went to Grandpa, and Grandpa he is, he ends up being the king of the land of Jeshur. And Jeshur wasn't very far away. It was just east of the Sea of Galilee. So at this point in chapter 14, Absalom has been away from Jerusalem for three whole years. Next, let's consider what David is doing. Or more so, what he's not doing. David didn't bring justice against Amnon. And now for the past three years, he's not brought about justice against Absalom. Two sons have failed him. One's a rapist. The other is a murderer. They are, however, taking after their own father, who took advantage of Bathsheba and murdered her husband. 
Perhaps David's passivity came from, came from shame. From the shame he felt from failing his family. Maybe he felt that, that their sins were because of his sins, and, and so how could he punish them? We don't know what's going through David's mind, but we do know that he isn't doing anything about his son. The text says that his, his heart goes out to him, but that's it. His heart is full of feeling, but absent of conscience. Absent of conscience, uh, of, of a plan to act on his conscience. So that's what David is not doing. So what's God doing? Back in chapter 12, when the Lord confronts David through the prophet Nathan, the Lord punishes David with a punishment that has fallout for the whole house, for his whole household. We read this in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 12. And these, these two verses are so important for understanding this chapter and, and the surrounding chapters as well to understand what God is doing. Verses 10 through 11 says, Now therefore, this is David, this is God speaking to David, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is heavy. God said that the sword should ne shall never depart from your house. And he said, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will raise up evil. That's, that's really strong language. How could, how could God do this? This is a language of, of, of curse and not blessing. We see this curse fulfilled in the actions of Absalom and, and, and against Amnon and against his father David. So how could God do this? How could God raise up evil if he's good and if God doesn't sin? How could God not be blamed as the author of Absalom's murder and, and the division in David's house? I think Augustine of Hippo has a very helpful answer for us. Augustine was one of the early church fathers. Uh, he lived in the uh, mid-300s through the early 400s. And he describes the problem of evil as the absence of God's goodness. The absence of God's goodness. Evil is the absence of something, of specifically God's goodness. Evil is a privation or lack of good. Augustine says in the City of God, Evil has no positive nature, but the loss of good has received the name evil. And in his book, Confessions, he writes, All which is corrupted is deprived of good. God made everything, right? And God made everything good, right? But God didn't make evil because evil isn't something. Rather, it's the loss of something. The loss of good. Evil is like a shadow. A shadow isn't anything. It's the lack of something. It's the absence of light. So when God speaks to David saying, I will raise up evil, 
He's not guilty for the evil because he's not creating the murder of Absalom. Rather, he is withdrawing some of his blessing and goodness from David and his house. God pulling away his goodness exposes David and his sons to be who they are apart from the grace of God. Sinners through and through. And that's us too. We, apart from the grace of God, are sinners through and through. I love the quote that Pastor Chris has been sharing over these past few weeks. There, but by the grace of God, go I. There, but by the grace and goodness and blessing of God, go I. So God is not the author of evil. We are rather dependent upon Him for all good. So chapter 14, it's all fallout from David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. We're shown here what human nature is like apart from the goodness of God. As God pulls back His blessing on David's life, David turns to feelings over conscience, partiality over justice, pseudo-peace over necessary conflict, the wisdom of man over the wisdom of God and the law of God. So as we come to today's passage, we see four examples of fallout from David's sin. The first fallout we see is that worldly wisdom replaces godly wisdom. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Joab knew the king's heart went out to Absalom, but he wasn't bringing Absalom back. We aren't told what Joab's motives are for wanting Absalom to come back, but I'm suspicious of his motives. You see, Joab was a murderer too, just like Absalom and just like David, though David did repent. Joab then, I could see him being favorable for wanting murder to be minimized, to be overlooked, to be forgiven. If, uh, if Joab advocated for God's law to be obeyed in the case of Absalom, well, then he might just be next in line to be executed. So it may have been in Joab's personal interest to have Absalom restored. He knew that David had strong feelings of love for his son, and, and perhaps he could be persuaded to bring him back, if done in the right way. So Joab gets a wise woman from Tekoa. Tekoa was just south of Jerusalem by 10 miles. It was just south of Bethlehem by 5 miles. Tekoa was uh, where the prophet of Amos is from. Now this woman, she's described as wise. But she's not wise with the wisdom of God. Rather, she has worldly wisdom, or maybe it would be better to describe it as, as, as cunning, as, as persuasion, as influence, 
Uh, she's a good actor. She's good with her words. She can think on her feet. She can talk on her feet really well. She's very convincing. God's wisdom here is it's not consulted at all by Joab or by David. So, God leaves them to their own wisdom. As David and Joab turn away from the wisdom of God, God leaves them to their own wisdom. There is a proverb that says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And that couldn't be more true here in this passage. This will lead to death. Not in this chapter today, but in the upcoming chapters. So the woman from Tekoa, she goes to David and she spins a tale to him. A fake story about uh, um, given to her by Joab and it has these subtle parallels to Absalom's situation. She tells David that, that she's a widow and, and uh, her, her two sons were fighting and one killed the other. And now her whole clan wants her son handed over uh, so that they can put him to death. But she doesn't want this because then she would have no one left and her dead husband would have no one to carry on his name. She is subtly and emotionally advocating for family honor over justice. In verse 8 through 11, we see that David is quickly and easily persuaded. He even vows on the name of the Lord. That's how confident he is. He vows on the name of the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Wow. He thinks of vowing on the name of the Lord, but he doesn't think about consulting the Lord. He doesn't think about the wisdom or law of the Lord. In verses 12 through 20, the woman of Tekoa, she takes a play out of the playbook of the prophet of Nathan, the prophet Nathan, and she drops her own ver- version of "You are the man." Yet this is going to be way different. Look at verse 13. And the woman said, "Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again." You are the man, part two. But this time, this is not something that's from the Lord. The logic of the woman of Tekoa and Joab, it's kind of confusing at first why, how this story works to convince David. But here's the reasoning, the reasoning that traps David. If David is willing to protect and not punish a banished son guilty of murder, and if he's willing to to then restore him to his family, then he should also then, then he can fix himself if he does not also protect and not punish his banished son Absalom, who is guilty of murder as well. And then he must restore him to his family as well. If David judges, as he just did, if David judges that family honor trumps justice for murder, then he must act accordingly with his own son. 
Well, the worldly wisdom of Joab works. And as a result, we see a second example of fallout from David's sin. We see injustice for a murderer. Injustice for a murderer. Look at verses 21 through 24. 21 through 24. The, Lord, the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man, Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Pastor Derek, Derek Thomas keenly points out that while the prophet Nathan roused David's conscience over against his feelings, Joab does the opposite. Joab, through the woman of Tekoa, arouses David's feelings over against his conscience. David ends up giving Absalom just a mere slap on the wrist for murder. He didn't execute him. Instead, he just didn't let him come into his presence. It's giving him the silent treatment. That's injustice. The punishment does not fit the crime. David was not the blessed man of Psalm 1. He did not meditate on God's law day and night. He knew what was right, but he did not do it. He did what was expedient. He was partial to his, his family and, and his feelings. The fallout from David's sin with Bathsheba, it's getting worse and worse. The more David was, was passive and, and, and avoided doing what was right and bringing about justice, I think the, the easier it then became for him to, to compromise and uh, to compromise his conscience and, and to just justify not doing the right thing. We can do the same, can't we? The longer we wait to do what is right, the easier it is to just never end up doing it. Or just to, just to do less than what God wants us to do. There, but by the grace of God, go I. Verses 25 through 27, it takes a step back from the story for a second to do something kind of odd. Yet it's eerily familiar. We read a side note about how handsome Absalom is. He's praised for his appearance. He made public how heavy his hair was after his haircut. And, and uh, perhaps what we read here was his personal record, his personal best of how heavy his hair was. And so he made that known to people. And his children were also beautiful, especially his, his daughter that he named Tamar after his sister. All of this talk of Absalom's appearance, it has a point. Who does it remind you of? It reminds us of King Saul, doesn't it? He was attractive in appearance, which made people want to follow him and, and make him their king. And like Saul, nothing 
is mentioned of Absalom's heart, whether or not he has wisdom and a godly character. Saul didn't, and neither does Absalom. So, as the author of 2 Samuel here writes this description of Absalom, we're to read it as foreshadow of what is to come, of something similar to what happened with King Saul is going to happen here with Absalom. The next three chapters show, show even more fallout from, from David's sin with Bathsheba as Absalom leverages his, 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 his appearance and his popularity with the people to begin an insurrection against his father. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. David's failures, they're just layering, aren't they? <laughs> He's burying himself deeper and deeper. David brought Absalom back from fleeing Jerusalem, but pretty soon Absalom is going to make David flee Jerusalem. Repent quickly, brothers and sisters. Repent quickly from sin. Turn to God for daily wisdom, for His Word to direct your steps. If you're in a deep hole from your sin, now is the day to stop digging yourself deeper. Now is the day to end any confidence in yourself and to come to God for mercy and grace and help through the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. We have no good apart from God. So stop before the fallout continues to get worse and worse and worse. Now let's consider the last example of fallout. In verses 28 through 33, we see that Absalom, he goes two full years living in Jerusalem before coming into the king's presence. The prodigal son had returned, but only in body, not in spirit. There's no repentance here. There's no remorse for the murder. And because there's no repentance, there's no reconciliation between Absalom and his father. He simply returned. His father did not run to him and, and hug him and throw a party for him. He didn't put a ring on his finger and celebrate by sacrificing the fatted calf. They don't even see each other for two whole years while Absalom is in Jerusalem. So in total, it's been five years since David has seen his son. So here we see another example of fallout from David's sin. That his relationship with his son was physically closer now, but still as relationally distant as ever, if not worse. David continues to do nothing about it. And it takes Absalom lighting Joab's field on fire to get Joab's attention in order to convince Joab to go to David to let Absalom come into his presence. I guess that's one way to get somebody's attention. In the last verse here, we see that Absalom does come into the king's presence and, and he bows before the king and the king kisses Absalom. But we should not think for one moment that this is reconciliation or that justice has been served. Neither has happened. 
Israelites. And Absalom's dead relationship with his father will give him no hesitancy for trying to take the throne from him in the chapters to come. So where do we go from here? Nothing good happened in this chapter. We saw worldly wisdom and cunning. We saw passivity, injustice, partiality, feelings preferred over conscience, the minimization of murder, the the preference of outward appearance over godly character. We saw the law of God trumped by nepotism and expediency. So how are we to live in light of all the darkness that we see here? Let's first have the wisdom to see that the same patterns of sin that we saw in this chapter, the same patterns can be in our hearts too. May God give us the wisdom to to notice what's going on in the hidden heart. To notice when, when, when we're being passive, when we know what God has required us to do, we're not doing it. And second, as we see these similar patterns in our hearts, let's humble ourselves, brothers and sisters. Let's, let's, let's repent quickly. Let's humble ourselves quickly. The fallout from sin, the effects from it, can get worse and worse and worse. And the sooner we repent, the sooner there is less effect on our souls, ourselves, on the people that we love around us. 2 Samuel, should, it should move us to prayer, to asking God for His wisdom daily, for His grace, for His Holy Spirit to guide us according to His Word day in and day out. We see who we are apart from the grace of God. And we don't want that. We're desperate for the grace of God. So let's pray for that daily. Let's come to the Lord for that daily. And lastly, this chapter, it pushes us to ask the question, when will the fallout from sin end? God wants us to see that all sin and all the fallout from sin, it ends with Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That He might bring us to God. Jesus is the one who brings us back to the Father. We were the prodigal son who sinned and and, and fled from God's good presence. And Jesus is the one who initiated bringing us from banishment to the new Jerusalem. He brings us to repentance and faith, and He restores our relationship to the Father. There is still sin in this life, and and there's, there's still fallout from sin that we've committed, even after we're saved. We still feel these effects. But knowing that Jesus has brought us near to God and He's put His Holy Spirit in our hearts and He's written His law within us and He's given us His wisdom to guide us each day, knowing this gospel and knowing what God has given us through the Holy Spirit gives us the hope and the grace and the strength that we need to do what God requires to do justice, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly before our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are keenly aware now of the sin that's in our hearts and, 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 and the potential of how it can grow and, con, and con, con, contort. And Lord, we see that we're desperate for you, for your grace, for your blessing, for your presence. Apart from you, we have no good thing. But through faith, we have Christ and all his benefits. We have everything. So we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have not let us, let us alone, but rather you have been our vine and you have, you have made us your branches and we receive daily all of our life from you. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask, Lord, that we would walk now in light of, of, uh, of what we've learned here, that we would repent quickly, that we would see our sin quickly. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for these brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray this all now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.